3: In the days and weeks after George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin, a white police officer, protesters took to the streets across America. Angry about a long history of racially motivated brutality and discrimination, they urged the authorities to defund the police. Politicians listened, with over 20 cities cutting their police budgets. But now, many of those same city governments are increasing investment in law enforcement. Refund the police, if you will. What's behind this apparent U-turn? I'm John Priddo, and this is Checks and Balance. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today. Can you refund and reform the police at the same time? Although crime overall hasn't risen during the pandemic, murders and shootings have. To be clear, this crime wave is much smaller than the long one that lasted from the 1960s to the 1990s. But it's still pretty bad. At least 16 cities set an all-time homicide record in 2021. Politicians are pumping money back into law enforcement in the hope that this will stem the bleeding. But how can police forces bring down crime without repeating the mistakes of the past. With me, as ever, to discuss the defunding and refunding of American police forces are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fassman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, what's the word? How's life in New York?
4: Life in New York is pretty good. Omicron cases remain high, but they may be close to peaking or maybe flat, which is good news. My little brother plays in a band and he had a gig this week, which is the first one he'd had in two years, the first live show he'd played in two years. And I decided to go masked. Um, In truth, it's it's not the best gauge of my risk tolerance. There would have to be flesh eating zombies to keep me from going to one of his shows. They're just so good.
3: And how was the gig?
4: It was great. It was a reminder also that um, something that we've discussed offline amongst us, amongst John Fazman, John Prito and, and myself, is the formation of a podcast band called Chicken of Tomorrow. And it was a reminder that uh, we have a lot of uh, rehearsing to do. Uh,
3: we certainly do. I think Charlotte would be the lead singer in that band and Fazman and I would probably both be on the triangle. If you're confused by that reference to the Chicken of Tomorrow, then go back and listen to our Thanksgiving episode. John, how are you doing? What's going on in your part of the state?
2: Um, I'm okay, thanks. The tiny COVID patient down the hall is much improved. He's in his second to last day of remote schooling today, I hope. Um, I'm not going to any shows, but I am getting on a plane on Sunday and I'm spending a week on the road reporting next week, which I'm looking forward to.
3: And John, regular listeners will know that we talk about criminal justice reform and policing a fair bit on this podcast. That's partly because it's in The Economist's DNA. At least as long as I've been at The Economist, we've written about mass incarceration and what's wrong with it in America. But it's also because this is a particular interest of yours. You know, you've know, you written a book about police tech, and also you've done a lot of reporting on criminal justice reform in the US. But why are we returning to this subject now? Well, because it feels like the conversation
2: has changed markedly from where it was not only in the wake of George Floyd's murder, but even at six months or a year ago, it feels like the conversation has taken a particularly sharp turn in especially liberal cities like Portland, Oregon. I spoke to its mayor, Ted Wheeler, this week, and given that Portland is now raising police budgets, I asked him if his thinking on police reform has changed since protests after George Floyd's death gripped his city.
0: Not, not at all. In fact, I don't believe you can improve policing on the cheap. If you really want to support improving how we recruit, who we hire, uh, making sure we're reaching out to communities of color and other communities that are typically underrepresented in policing, if we want to improve the way we police, if we want to invest in alternatives to policing uh, like our Portland Street response or our unarmed public safety support specialists, all those things cost money. you can't you can't improve policing for free. that's that's been my bottom line message.
2: And so what specific reforms do you think are most important to ensure that accountability and transparency and those good community relations between the police and the policed?
0: The first step is really more engagement with the public. And I'll give you a very specific example. Portland has a horrific gun violence and homicide problem that we're confronting right now. We're seeing record levels of gun violence, record levels of homicides. And so one of the solutions we've put up put in into play is what's called the focused intervention team. This is a new unit within the Portland Police Bureau that will prevent and intervene around gun violence. It has a citizens over group as part of that model. So this is this is new for us. And in many regards, this, this is a new model nationally to have private sector citizens working alongside the police bureau to recruit, to hire, to train, and uh, to put into place the policies that this focused intervention team will follow. And then they're also going to serve as a conduit of information to the media and to the public. So there'll be more transparency, more accountability about how we operate our focused intervention team. And we're doing that in other areas as well. And, and so just engaging the community, having the community be part of what's going on, I think, reduces some of the speculation and builds those bridges and helps the public really understand where the police are coming from. And it gives the police an opportunity to share with the public the challenges they face in the field. I think that will ultimately help build trust.
2: Let me ask one last question. You said when you announced the police budget that Portlanders have a right to feel safe. But as you acknowledged, the history of policing in Portland has not always made everyone feel safe, particularly non-white communities in Portland. So how do you assure people that increasing funding for police is going to increase public safety for everyone in the community?
0: You have to have the transparency and accountability. It's one thing to raise the money and invest it in the police bureau. It's a completely different thing to actually report back to the public on the data. The public has a right to be concerned about the disproportionate impacts on communities of color when it comes to policing, not only here in Portland, but across the country. And if George Floyd's murder showed us anything, it's that that kind of thinking can still exist in police bureaus. And it's up to us, the government, and up to us, the police bureaus, to give our uh, the citizens that we represent and serve uh, grounds to trust us. And so I think all of these kinds of investments in, in alternatives, strengthening our community oversight boards, improving our accountability mechanisms, being more transparent about the operations of our police bureau, and acknowledging that policing isn't static. It has to evolve as the needs in the community change, as our society changes, so too must policing. And we are in a Renaissance era for policing right now. We're right at the beginning of a significant change in the way we do policing that will be far more inclusive of community voices, particularly those that have not been part of the conversation previously because they've been excluded.
3: John, we heard a lot about defunding the police in 2020 after George Floyd's awful murder. And I think that the three of us, when we discussed it, agreed that defund the police was perhaps the worst political slogan of all time. How much defunding actually happened? How much was this a rhetorical thing and how much was it an actual thing that mayors carried through in various American cities?
2: Well, more than 20 big cities did reduce police budgets in some form or another. I think the most dramatic cut was probably Austin, Texas, which cut its budget by about one-third. This year, the city council in Austin looks poised to reverse those cuts and to make the Austin's police budget the biggest ever. So I think it's fair to say there has been a marked shift, not just on the rhetoric of defunding, but on the actual funding of, of police units, police departments.
4: Yes, even in the wake of the protests in 2020, when there was uh, seemed to be so much popular support for defunding the police among certain constituencies, there were some really big cities that did cut budgets for police, including New York, L.A., Washington, as John says, Austin, and Denver. But there were also many cities that year that did actually increase budgets, including Atlanta, San Diego, Houston. In some of the places like Denver, Um, The cuts to police had as much to do with the pandemic budget crunch as any kind of change in ideology. But as John says, now you do see a reversal in New York, L.A., Dallas seeking to increase police budgets.
2: And I think the point that Mayor Wheeler made about it being hard to reform police on the cheap is really important. I think that what people want is not less police, but is better trained, more responsive police that spend more of their time focused on solving serious crimes. That means investing in detective squads. It means investing in community outreach units. It means making police more visible and responsive in the communities where they're needed. That means personnel. It means you have to have a fully staffed department. And that costs money.
3: John, the conservative critique here, as you know, is that the budget cuts that some cities carried through in 2020 and after 2020 led directly to a crime spike particularly a violent crime spike and so this is something that democratic mayors and you know as we all know almost all cities certainly all large cities in America have democratic mayors this is exhibit A in the folly of democratic politics you know you cut budgets you cut police budgets for progressive reasons because you're worried about racial injustice and then crime takes off and you end up hurting many of the neighborhoods that you're hoping to help so how tight is that link How, how fair an accusation is that in fact the idea that police budgets were cut crime went up and there's a causal relationship between those things
2: That accusation is unfair and untrue. The states with the biggest upticks in the murder rate from 2019 to 2020 were Montana, South Dakota, Kentucky, and Delaware. Now, Montana, South Dakota, and Kentucky are not exactly liberal bastions. The truth is, murders rose pretty much everywhere. In big cities, small towns, almost every state saw an increase in the murder rate. If there were a causal relationship, you would expect to see conservative cities and states reduce crime while it went up in liberal cities, but that simply isn't what happened.
4: Say more about that, John. What are the best explanations for why crime did rise?
2: I mean, I think that it's it's. there's nothing conclusive yet. I mean, criminologists are still arguing about why crime went down in the 90s. So the causes are pretty widespread. I mean, I think it's probably some combination of the shuttering of schools and community centers, places that would occupy young people, a tremendous surge in gun sales, financial insecurity caused by job losses and by the end of the stimulus, and some form of depolicing caused perhaps by police officers getting COVID, and so forces were thin, perhaps caused by police pulling back in the wake of protests. But some combination of those factors, I think, are responsible for for a lot of the crime spike.
3: And so, John, a couple of things have changed here since 2020. We've seen a change in direction when it comes to police budgets, but we've also seen a bounce back, a restoration in Americans' confidence in the police, and particularly, notably, perhaps, given the recent history and African Americans' views about the police, which reached a real low point in 2019 for reasons that are completely understandable and don't really need explaining. But they've come back, which is quite interesting, because I think lots of us writing about George Floyd's death and the protest movement that followed from that, wondered the extent to which real permanent damage had been done to the relationship between African Americans and police forces that are are meant to protect them. That seems not to have been the case, in fact.
2: It seems not to have been the case. I think that's partly because, you know, we may be talking about refunding the police, but we're not going back to the same sort of paradigm of policing that we've had for so long. First of all, Derek Chauvin was convicted. He was convicted of murder. Kim Wright was convicted. You see increased numbers of police officers being held to account for their behavior. You also saw during Derek Chauvin's trial... Uh, The police chief of Minneapolis, uh, Chief Arundando, take the stand and say what Chauvin did was wrong. That would have been unthinkable back in the days of the sort of omerta of police forces. So even though budgets may be increasing, you're seeing police understand that they have to operate a little bit differently now than they have
3: been before. Okay, well, we'll talk about a president who was tough on law and order in a moment, and it probably won't be who you expect it to be. But before that, we would love it if you'd subscribe to The Economist, if you don't already. Your subscription will give you unlimited access to all of our journalism, including John's full piece on refunding the police this week, and a great special report by our colleague Jan on the changing relationship between companies and the state. You can also catch Jan on this week's Money Talks podcast. Economist.com slash USpod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode.
1: I have come once again to this chamber, the home of our democracy, to give you, as the Constitution requires, information of the State of the Union. President
3: Lyndon B. Johnson made his 1968 State of the Union address a couple of months before he decided not to seek re-election.
1: I shall also urge the Congress to act on several other vital pending bills.
3: With the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act already law, LBJ would pass his third major piece of civil rights legislation that year.
1: Especially the civil rights measures, fair jury trials, protection of federal rights, enforcement of equal employment opportunity and fair housing.
3: And escalate fighting in the Vietnam War with the Tet Offensive.
1: America's might and America's bravest sons who wear our nation's uniform must continue to stand guard for all of us as they gallantly do tonight in Vietnam and other places in the world.
3: In another section of the State of the Union, LBJ talked
1: about crime. The American people have had enough of rising crime and lawlessness in this country.
3: He had first declared a war on crime three years earlier in a letter to Congress describing it as a malignant enemy in America's midst. Alongside his Great Society Programme, which by curing and preventing poverty would tackle the causes of crime, he wrote that crime will not wait while we pull it up by the roots. We must arrest and reverse the trend towards lawlessness. One arm of this was bolstering police forces, a task he still hadn't finished by the time of the 1968 State of the Union. Johnson set out his wish for the federal government to play a larger role in law enforcement.
1: This does not mean a national police force. It does mean help and financial support to develop state and local master plans to combat crime, to provide better training and better pay for police, to bring the most advanced technology to the war on crime in every city and every county in America. And there is no more urgent business before this Congress and to pass the Safe Streets Act this year that I proposed last year.
3: Congress did pass it, and in June 1968, Johnson signed the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. The act legalised federal wiretapping, toughened gun control, and allowed the national government to funnel money to state and local law enforcement, Four hundred million dollars over the first two years. Much was diverted from the social projects of LBJ's great society. For many, this was a betrayal. A president who had done so much for African Americans... ...supporting the police forces they saw as their oppressors. The author and activist James Baldwin wrote that... ...some pale, compelling nightmare is responsible for the irresponsible ferocity of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. More recently, the historian Elizabeth Hinton has argued that Johnson's war on crime left a greater legacy than his more famous war on poverty, that it's here that policies like mass incarceration that disproportionately affect people of colour have their roots. Some of the presidents that followed LBJ, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, spring to mind are more commonly known for their tough law and order stances. But Johnson can be grouped with them. His decision to give federal money to law enforcement should provide a lesson for those leaders now looking to refund forces. More money doesn't necessarily lead to less crime or better policing. Charlotte, that story about LBJ, I think, is a reminder that if you're a politician on the progressive side of things in American politics, it's often very important to sound tough on crime or tough on foreign policy in order to buy permission from the voters to do some of the more liberal things you want to do. If voters think you are soft on crime, indulgent towards bad people, then they will punish you for it. And I think it's possible that that's one lesson which Democrats had to learn the hard way over a long period, and that perhaps some of them unlearned. And you're now seeing them, you know, take that on board again. If you look at some of the things that Democratic mayors have been saying recently, I'm thinking of London Breed in San Francisco saying that they won't put up with the bullshit there anymore that's destroyed the city.
4: Yes, I think you hear a really careful balancing act from different Democratic mayors throughout the country. And I also thought that The point made at the end of that history segment was relevant given our prior conversation, which is that just because you throw money at a problem doesn't mean that the problem goes away. As you see cities that had cut their police budgets start to reverse those cuts, the crucial question now is what you do with that money, right? It's not just more money, less money. It's about the way that that money is spent to state the absolute obvious, um, the way that policing continues to evolve in light of new data, in light of new um, police strategies. And I think you heard from Portland's mayor talking about a real renaissance in policing, that there is strangely you know, some optimism that the confluence of um, a real desire to tamp down crime rates, which is essential given the rise in violent crime, that the desire to, to tamp that down combined with real public support for reform policing does put mayors and police commissioners in a really interesting spot. And I think that that will play out in ways that you see sparking lots of public debate. But I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I think that that tension is appropriate. And so I think that there's a chance that we start moving forward in a way that feels like progress.
3: John, before we get to some of the solutions and some of the things we think that police forces ought to be doing to bring crime rates down, what are the mistakes of the past that are really important to avoid? Because you could see There's a very obvious temptation here, right? Crime is up. The solution to that is lock more people up, bring crime down that way, which is a tried and not tested solution that America ran an experiment in for a very long time from the 1960s to the 1990s and didn't work well, left the country with a bunch of problems that we're still trying to fix.
2: I think the most important thing not to do is to think that extremely long sentences will deter crime. By all means increase police presence, have responsible policing, but don't think that locking someone up for 40 years is inherently better or more deterrent than locking that person up for five or 10 years. I think the most important thing to do is to not repeat those sentencing mistakes.
4: I think it's worth remembering that as much as it's important, and I agree that it's very important to talk about specific policies about which there have been reams of research written, it's also just important to keep in mind some of the personnel problems. So As part of my job writing about American business, I've been looking into the very, very tight labor market that is affecting all different types of industries. But there's a particular problem, actually, if you look at policing. There was a survey of about 200 police departments last year that found that retirements were up 45% from April 2020 to April 21, um, resignations up 18%. That's a lot. And that's a problem. In Portland, you had five times as many police officers resigning or retiring in the year after George Floyd's death than in the year before it. It's a problem both because you don't have enough officers on the street or the officers that are out there are strained. Um, Dallas's mayor pointed out that you're spending a lot of money on overtime. So it's both expensive for the city to pay for all the overtime. The officers themselves are burnt out. And so one of the interesting things that's happening is that you see... Employers in cities are looking for police officers doing the same thing that employers in other industries are doing to try to widen the net to get people to work for police departments. That includes loosening some criteria, so uh, the number of college credits needed, or loosening what were really harsh restrictions against those who had smoked marijuana in the past, disqualifying them completely from joining police departments if they'd smoked in a certain number of years prior to their application, et cetera. And you saw the Dallas mayor talking about the need for more hiring, also for pay increases. So I think, interestingly, there's this HR problem that police departments are dealing with, that in many ways is similar to the HR problem that so many companies, so many employers are facing. But for police departments, it's particularly acute, and the risks of doing it badly of not dealing with the problem are severe.
3: Okay, we'll be back in a moment to discuss the best way of reforming police officers in an era where there's more money around for police departments.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
2: Well, I talked to a number of people, politicians and activists and practitioners alike. One of the best conversations I had was with David Muhammad, who heads the National Institute of Criminal Justice Reform. He's one of those people who every conversation with him leaves you smarter and thinking about things a little bit differently. I wanted to talk to him about how you pursue reform at a time of rising crime rates. And the rising homicide rate means that he is having to go to new places to talk about criminal justice reform.
5: I'm sitting in frigid Green Bay, Wisconsin right now, not a city I would ever imagine I'd be in working on gun violence. But, um, you know, this small city has seen quite an increase in shootings. And uh, we're here to to help them uh, assess what's happening as well as help develop effective gun violence reduction strategies. And so I am freezing and
2: so when you talk about going back to the sort of law and order mistakes of the past, what, tell me a little
5: more about what you mean by that. What do you worry about? Yeah, I, I'm I'm very concerned about a pendulum shift back to the horrible old days of mass incarceration, uh, a very racialized, carceral state. We're now in this... Um, coronavirus era, which has brought with it an increase in gun violence and very concerned about the uh, pendulum shift, um, particularly when we know better now. Uh, We know that Uh, In terms of serious crime and violence, there's a small number of people uh, involved in serious crime and violence. And around gun violence, it's a very identifiable population that we can have effective interventions with. Um, And so there's no need to go back uh, to the to the horrible days of mass incarceration.
2: And so how does that conversation go? I mean, in the sense that it seems to me there's a productive way and a non-productive way to have this conversation. A phrase like defund the police sets up the conversation for failure, it seems to me. Whereas if what you want is to have alternative responses to smaller interactions, to give police more time to solve violent crimes, how do those conversations start between you,
5: people who are reformers, and police departments? if we want to achieve the goal right if the goal is rhetoric and and demonstration then you know you might choose a different path the goal is to achieve the 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 outcome of a reduced law enforcement footprint and increased uh, public safety, then you have to approach that uh, discussion, uh, I think, in a much more mature way, um, which is what is who is best to respond to what incidents and what's our resource allocation. Uh, and so I think approaching this discussion, I've had this discussion with so many police officers all over the country, and we generally agree on a lot Uh, In fact, I think we agree on everything with with one exception. So let me first start with what we agree with is that police officers don't need to respond to all of these calls. Uh, Some of these calls don't need responses at all. People are just used to calling 911 for anything. Um, That if we stand up, good, effective, and large enough alternative responses, then we can have police not respond to those incidents. And I think I think many police I talk to have a legitimate concern of you're going to cut us before there is even an alternative. Um, and yes, let's stand up the alternative. Let's make sure it's well-trained and well-designed and well-deployed and is effective. Um, And then we could focus more of police attention, resources, response to serious and violent crime. Uh, And and I have not found a police officer yet who have not disagreed with that. Where we disagree is when all that's said and done, we can begin to reduce the um, staffing of police departments slowly and responsibly, um, and therefore begin to reallocate funding into community services.
2: And I assume once you stand up those agencies, the conversation about police force size will become different over time, right? You're not talking about firing dozens of police officers immediately. You're talking about a sort of natural attrition because police will be doing less, right?
5: That, that's exactly right. And in all of the cities where we are doing some version of this, uh, we're suggesting, you know, no layoffs, no firing, uh, natural attrition. Um, and 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 one of the the discussions, uh, may I say, debates I'm having with friends in law enforcement and like seriously friends in law enforcement uh, who really we have what we've done something in policing in the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years is made patrol the sacred cow. Um, and made responding to 911 calls or otherwise calls for service, the primary function of policing. And I, I do think we need to make a fundamental shift away from that. That's not Tomorrow, it's not next year, right? But we need to gradually shift policing to be more about responding to serious crime and violence and investigating, right? We need to put more emphasis on solving crime than responding to incidents. John, let's
3: pick up where David Mohammed left off there. Why would it be such a good idea to get police to stop responding to 911 calls, or at least respond less often, perhaps less quickly to 911 calls, and spend more time solving murders and trying to stop serious violent crime? Why, why is that a good use of resources or a better use of resources than what we have at the moment? Because I guess Lots of Americans might think, well, that the, you know, what we want the police for is to be on the other end of a phone line and come, come quickly when, when we call. And the reforms that he's suggesting, which I think sound pretty sensible to me, would involve saying to the public, actually, we're going to put you on hold for a while because we've got a serious crime incident that we're trying to solve. And the thing you've called us up about just isn't that serious. That's probably quite a hard thing to do, right? The person who's made that call isn't going to like it.
2: I don't think it's a question of putting people on hold for a while. I think it's a question of allocating police resources toward the solving of the most serious crimes. That acts as a deterrent. I think that what he is talking about is that often 911 calls are, you know, the proverbial kitten in the tree or a noise complaint or someone in a mental health crisis. On the merits, we don't need armed officers to respond to all of those situations, especially because there's often a risk in mental health crises of escalation, of things going badly. I think that what reformers need to keep in mind and be prepared for is just a lot of people are armed here right? A lot of people are armed in the United States. So it's true, it would be better if you sent people with mental health training, even police will tell you, it would be better if you sent people with mental health training to people in a mental health crisis. But what happens when, inevitably, one of those mental health professionals gets shot by someone who is armed in a mental health crisis? You have to be prepared politically for that, or it could sort of unwind the whole movement for reform. But Police tend to get into policing to keep people safe, and you want to make sure that police forces can do that to the best extent possible. And that seems to me to involve focusing most of their attention and time and resources on solving the most serious and violent crimes.
4: Yeah, I think you see that debate playing out pretty dramatically at the moment between Alvin Bragg, who's the newly elected Manhattan district attorney, and Keishan Sewell, who is the new police commissioner appointed by Eric Adams, New York City's new mayor, who himself is a former member of the police force, um, who came to office with a platform that included being tough on crime while also pursuing police reform. And what happened with, with Alvin Bragg is he sent a memo around to his staff telling staff uh, to stop charging people for certain lower level crimes, not to seek prison sentences when the crimes became really serious. She was uh, There was also some guidance around how to handle people who resist arrest. And then Keisha, Chant Sewell, the police commissioner, sent her own email to the 36,000 members of the police department saying she was, quote, very concerned about the safety of officers and the public, about justice for victims. She was particularly concerned about that last bit, the guidance about how to handle people resisting arrest. But this debate is playing out in real time, which is how do you take the public will to reform police departments and try to, to tamp down crime at the same time? I don't think that, again, kind of to my earlier point, I think that it's good that this debate is happening. I think the the fact that it's very live and that you have this tension between DAs and police departments is not necessarily a bad thing. And that within that very active debate, I think potentially you come out with a police department that pursues the goal of enhancing public safety while protecting um, the rights of citizens and so I, I think there's a potential for that. There's also a big potential for dysfunction. So maybe we'll, we should keep an eye on this and see how things play out in the next year. But it certainly is is a really, really active area of, of conversation and debate.
2: It also shows that voters have made a very sort of sophisticated statement about reform at the ballot box, right? The five biggest American cities by population all have reform-minded DAs at the top, But those five cities also this year have all increased their police funding. People are aware that mass incarceration has been traumatic and unproductive. People don't want to return to that method of sentencing and prosecution. But they do understand that any effective public safety response has to involve the police. And they want to have safe streets. They just don't want people's lives to be ruined forever by mistakes they may have made when they were young.
4: I think, John, that's right. And you see that play out in the polling data where you have 63% of voters, including a big chunk of Republicans, 43%, say that they like the idea of redirecting some police funding to deal with issues related to mental illness. They like the idea of banning chokeholds, colds. They want to end qualified immunity, which prevented police from being held accountable for misconduct that may have occurred while they were on the job. But I was also really struck by the switch in public support around defunding the police broadly. There was a Pew poll that showed the share of respondents who wanted to drop funding for the police nearly halved from 2020 to 2021. And even in 2020, though, it was only about a quarter of respondents who said they wanted to uh, reduce financing for de- police departments. Some of the, the data is polarized, as you can imagine. But interestingly, if you looked at the polling for black respondents, it was less than a quarter who supported defunding the police. And there was a particularly big jump in the past year among those who want increased funding. It went up That figure went up by about 72 percent. So, you know... I think that there's actually, interestingly, some policy rigidity among white progressive voters. White Democrats are less likely to support increasing funding for police than black or Hispanic Democrats. But um, I think across the board, you see in the polling that there is kind of a switch where you have a lot of support for police reform coupled with support for financing police departments in a healthy way.
3: I feel like we've come full circle here in a way because defund the police, it seems, is now dead, as you say, Charlotte, both in terms of public opinion and in terms of what's actually happening in cities. As many American cities are increasing their police budgets. But if you talk to some of the defund movement back in 2019, 2020, as all of us did, the more thoughtful ones, when you said, what do you mean by defund the police? They would say, well, actually, we think that some of the police budgets should be diverted towards mental health crisis care or towards some forms of public safety that don't involve heavily armed officers showing up. And that, it seems, actually, John, from what you've been writing this week and from some of the numbers that Charlotte's pulled up, that seems to be quite popular and actually, if David Mohammed is right, quite likely to happen in a bunch of cities. So defund the police is dead, but some of the aims of the defund the police movement may in fact be carried out even though police budgets aren't going to get cut. Okay, before you guys go, you know what's coming up. It's quiz time. So my question for you, Portland, Oregon is named after its eastern counterpart, but it was almost named after a different New England city. Which city is that? Which city did it almost share a name with? Boston? That's a wild guess.
4: Providence, I'll stick with some peas.
3: The answer, if correct, it was Boston, Massachusetts. Apparently a coin toss was held in 1845 when Portland, Oregon was founded. And the Portland penny is now on display in a museum in the city.
2: I think my feelings about Maine and about Boston
3: are both a matter of public record. And Portland made the right choice. (laughs) Question two. Winning a coin toss meant that Richie Valance got the last seat on the plane that was to crash and kill him and Buddy Holly, immortalized as the day the music died in Don McLean's American Pie. A quick fire round now. I'm going to read you lyrics from that song, and I want you to tell me who they're believed to refer to. Oh, man. Lyric one. When the jester sang for the king and queen in a coat he borrowed from James Dean, who is the jester? Is it Bob Dylan?
4: Um, yeah, Bob Dylan sounds right, but I'll go with some beetle.
3: Uh, it was Bob Dylan, I'm afraid, Charlotte. Some beetle would, would have been the sort of thing I would have guessed also. Apparently, the coat he wore on the cover of the Freewheeling Bob Dylan album looks like one that James Dean wore in Rebel Without a Cause. Okay, next lyric. I met a girl who sang the blues, and I asked her for some happy news, but she just smiled and turned away. Who is the girl?
4: Joni Mitchell? That's not. She didn't sing conventional blues, but folky blues.
2: That's really good. Uh, Who else is like that? Uh, Joan, uh, what is her name? God damn it.
3: Joan Baez, you're thinking? Joan Baez. Um, it was neither of them. Apparently, it was Janice Joplin, who died in 1970, a year before American Pie was released. Joni Mitchell's a good shout, but not, in fact, correct. OK, another lyric for you. This is the last one, Charlotte. You'll soon be out of your misery. Now, the halftime air was sweet perfume while the sergeants played a marching tune. Who are the sergeants?
2: Oh, is that uh, Sergeant Pepper? Is that the Beatles?
4: Yeah, I would have thought the Beatles, but I've already guessed a Beatles. So I don't know. I'll, I'll just concede this to Fasman as usual.
3: The answer is indeed the Beatles. I'm not yeah. sure who gets a point there. I think, Charlotte, you probably get one. Fasman definitely gets one. Fasman comes out on top in this quiz again. Charlotte, I, I'd hope that the musical <laughs> spin of it may have given you an advantage, but but apparently not.
4: I'm happy to concede to John, as always. I feel very comfortable in this role. <laughs>
3: Perhaps in a future quiz, I should ask you who does the best Neil Young impersonation on on The Economist staff, the answer to which is, of course, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. I hope you both have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, John. Thanks also to our producers, Harriet Noble and Nicolás Rofast. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That helps us to find more listeners on the interweb. Please do get in touch via email. We really enjoy hearing from you and read all the letters that you send in. The address is podcasts at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.